Morning, church. Morning. Happy Sabbath. It's um, great to have the, the kids back up, right? And having a story for them. Without the kids, church won't be the same, right? We have missed that for, for some time. But who gave us the kids? Who? Mothers. Mothers. Do you all remember something about mother, this word? Mother's Day, right? We almost all forgot about it. Um, Mother's Day is this weekend. Um, and I would like to invite all the mothers to stand. Before I get into my sermon, right? Can I get all the mothers to stand? We have a small little gift for you this morning. Nat, you can come up with the uh, young people. Mothers, please stand. We would like to acknowledge you. We would like to thank you for your contribution, giving us the kids as well as bringing them up. Nat. Hello. Hello. Oh, happy Sabbath. So, uh, uh, could I invite the young people and the children to come up? It's a bit of an exercise this morning, but young children have a lot of energy. So, uh, could young people please come forward? Kids, yeah. come up and grab a flower for your come, come. mom. <laughs> okay. Okay, so um, I know all of you uh, are here to collect flowers for your parents, uh, for your mom, but uh, I, I, I apologize that you can only take one flower. La. <laughs> so we'll go one by one, and then uh, after this, there'll be something else as well. So, um, Kai, you want to take the first flower? Okay, which flower do you like for your mom? Okay, come. Where's your sister? Ask your sister to come here. Okay, come. Next. Okay, Y'all can choose the colours that you want based on what you think your mum likes. Nice. Just stick for her, please. Oh no. Wait, 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 wait. Only take only take one, only take one. Sorry, sorry. Later, 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 later. So only got one one left. <laughs> Come. Sorry, just just one first, just one first. Yes, take. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yes, go. Sorry, are there other doors without? Ah, I think. good. Thank you, Nat. Um, and thank you, mothers, once again for your contribution, never-ending love for your kids, for us as a church too, okay? Let's get into the sermon proper. B, 
busy service today. But I think that's an important message that I would like to share with each of you today. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to you to learn about commitment, may you open up our hearts and our minds to receive your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. I've entitled my sermon today, Committed. What is commitment? I put four photos on the right-hand side, right? And when you hear this word commitment, we tend to associate in one way or another. Not all the four, I've not covered everything, but you know, I have a commitment to my family, right? Um, I'm committed to exercise, to work out, to lose that weight. I'm committed to that diet, right? I know we are already late into the year, right? So some of our resolutions are out the window, <laughs> maybe in January already. And the last corner that you see there is the church. I intentionally put that, right? Because that is something that I want each of us to think as I share a bit more about what it means to be committed as a Christian. But before I get there, I want to define this word commitment. What does it mean to be committed? So I'm going to throw out some phrases and I'd like us to, under, to look at it and say, okay, is that commitment, right? I don't care. Not much to say, right? Clearly, this is not commitment. We all can agree on that? Yes? Okay, let's move on. How about this? I wish and I hope. Is this commitment? No? Why not? What is happening when you are wishing and hoping? Where's the action? On someone else, right? Not on you, right? I wish to get a gift. Yeah? So you're waiting for someone else's action. So that is also not commitment, right? Because the responsibility lies outside of you. How about this? I want. Seems closer to commitment, right? I want. Let's, let me give you an illustration. I want a Lamborghini. Okay? Not any Lamborghini. A Lamborghini Aventador LP780-4. You know, over the weekend, I, I won a Lamborghini. Right? So I went to the showroom. I got the brochure. I checked out the colors. I went for a test drive twice. I won a Lamborghini. Am I committed? I am not committed to pay the price. Okay? Definitely not. Uh, for those of you who see me drive, I don't drive a Lamborghini. Okay? For sure. It doesn't even look like one. Okay? I am not willing to pay the price. And just to let you know, I checked out the price. Okay? I really didn't go to the showroom. I'm trying to give an illustration here. Uh, it's $2 million, Singapore dollars. Crazy price, right? I am not willing to pay the price. So I want is not the same as commitment in my definition. How about this? I'll try. Hmm? Hey, I would like you to do something for the church. I'll try. 
right? Can you help me carry out that task? I'll try, I'll give it my best shot. I'll try is not really the same as commitment in my books too, okay? Imagine, imagine, I'm at the altar on my wedding day, right? The pastor is saying, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife in sickness and in health? To death, do you part? And what do you say, Kelly? I'll try. <laughs> Bit hard going, right? And of course, I can argue, right? Hey, guys, I'll try. You know, I'm going to give my best shot. Haven't you looked at the statistics? One in two marriages fail, right? And it's even getting worse, right? The statistics. No, I'll try is not the same as commitment. So really, what is commitment? This is commitment. I'll do whatever it takes. Let me say that again. Commitment is saying, I'll do whatever it takes. Completely opposite of I'll try, I want, I wish, I hope. What does it mean to be a committed Christian? A committed disciple of Christ. Let's look deeper into it. I'd like you all to turn, and I'm going to refer to many Bible texts today, so whip out your phones, your Bibles, those online, right? Um, please join me. I'd like you to turn to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 15 to 21. And this is the story about Elisha, right? And Elijah. And in this story, we... See prophet Elijah calling this attendant, right? And his future successor, Elisha. Let's read. Verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel king over Aram. Also anoint Yehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elijah son of Shepherd from Abel, Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Yehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazel, and Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword of Yehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouth have not kissed him. Verse 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elijah, Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went, Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Verse 20, Elijah, Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. And what did Elijah reply? Go back. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He went back and took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Here we see Eli Elisha, right? A simple farmer who is suddenly and unexpectedly approached by the famous prophet Elijah and invited to accompany him and serve, serve him as his personal attendant. When Elisha request time to first go back home and say goodbye to his parents. What did Elijah make clear? 
that decision to follow him was entirely up to Elisha, right? What have I done to you means, in essence, what claim do I have to, over you? And basically the answer is none. In other words, Elisha is free to stay or go. Elisha not only chose to accept the call, but what did he do? He slaughtered his oxen and feeds them to his neighbours, burning his plow equipment to cook the meat. And by doing so, what did he do? He publicly and irrevocably declares his intention to live his former ways of life and follow Elijah. What does it mean to be committed? It means making a firm choice. It means not worrying about keeping your options open or leaving yourself a way out. It means pursuing something wholeheartedly with no contingency plans to fall back on. It means 100% sold out to a person or a cause or a goal, not holding back anything, not keeping anything in reserve. It means doing whatever it takes. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you gave or did something 100%? Think about it. Pause. Eh? Slow down your mind and reflect a bit. When was the last time you did something 100%? Parents, when was the last time you did 100% or gave 100% to your kid? while you were teaching them, spending time with them? When was the last time you gave 100% to your family? At work? At church? To your fellow church member? 100%. How about right now during this service? Are you here 100%? 50%? For you to answer right? now the idea of this being discommitted to anyone or anything makes some of us very uncomfortable right when i when i first got into this you know preparation and study when i look at 100 percent it feels oh, asking too much from me asking too much from you really it feels risky right it feels like we're going out on a limb uh, what if the person you've committed yourself to lets you down? What if the cause turns out to be not as worthy as you thought? And there's a lot to be said um, for caution, right? God isn't calling us to be reckless or foolhardy. He doesn't want us to just rush into things without counting the cost. But once we are determined the path we're going to take, once we have discerned to the best of our ability what God is calling us to do, then what He wants are sold-out followers who won't look back when the going gets tough. What He wants are disciples who are so committed that to Him that they will burn their oxen, right? Disciples who will jettison whatever is holding them back and who will follow Him wherever He leads. Are you that kind of disciple? And do you want to be? Let me tell you something. God dislikes. You mean God can dislike? Yes, He dislikes. God dislikes wishy-washiness. 
He doesn't care for fan-sitters. He isn't pleased by people who can't quite make up their minds, who are forever weighing their options, who can never settle on a course of action. God isn't calling us to act rashly, remember that, without any thought to consequence. But what he wants are people who will follow him with joyful abandonment, without regret, without looking back. Let's look at Luke. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 9, 59, 62, verse 59 to 62, and let's read what Jesus has to say. Verse 59, he said to another man, follow me, but he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and look back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Let me ask you, are you sold out 100% for God? Are you determined to seek after God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and strength? Are you trying to have it both ways? Are you trying to serve God just enough to keep him happy, just enough to keep your conscience quiet, while at the same time, you're also following after the things of this world? Church, there is no more certain way to make yourself miserable than to try and serve God and to also serve the world and also to serve yourself. This is an either-or, right? Do do you know what Jesus said? It is better to be a wholehearted pagan following after the world with all your strength. Why? At least there's hope for conversion. But a half-hearted so-called Christian is something God despises. In fact, it makes him nauseous. Let's look at Revelations 3, 15, 17. What does it say? Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 to 17. To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out. Nauseous part. Out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize. You are a wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Have you ever been hot and sweaty and thirsty? Right? And longing for that cold drink, but instead you get lukewarm tap water. Or even worse still, lukewarm gassy drinks. You know? You can barely swallow it, right? It's not refreshing. On the contrary, it's nauseating. And that's how Christ feels about a lukewarm disciple. So what are you? Hot? Cold? Or just disgustingly turbid? Think about that. Let's read what Jesus says about being single-minded. Turn to Luke chapter 16, verse 3. It says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. On the surface, 
It doesn't seem impossible at all, right? Why should wealth be incompatible with godliness? And in fact, some preachers today will tell you wealth is not only consistent with godliness, but actually a sign of godliness. But the scripture tells us that it's impossible. Impossible to serve God and at the same time serve anything else. You can't serve God and also serve money. You can't serve God and also serve safety and security. You can't serve God and serve career advancement. Why? Because we can only run full speed in one direction. Because we want to do whatever it takes. Because there's only room in our hearts for one consuming passion. And that object of our love and devotion must be Jesus Christ. Because he alone is worthy of it. Let's look at James, the book of James, chapter 1, 6 to 8. James, chapter 1, 6 to 8. I put the full text on the screen. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded, unstable in all that they do. What does this mean? It means that if we are praying to God just as the way of covering our bases, then we shouldn't expect a reply. If we want to receive anything from God, then our dependence has to be completely upon Him. If we want Him to supply our needs, then our attitude must be one of complete reliance on Him as the source of every good thing. So if we are ambivalent about whether we should trust in God or in something else, then we shouldn't be surprised if our half-hearted prayers go unanswered. God answers prayers of those who place their welfare and happiness entirely in His hands, who look to Him alone for the good things they desire. Let me ask you another question. Who was Jesus' favourite disciples of the twelve? Who were his buds, you know, his buddies, his go-to guys? Three of them, right? Who are they? Peter, James, and John, right? When Jesus had something special he wanted to share with only a few people, those were the men he chose. For instance, he invited them and they accompanied him to the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Where his, his glory shone so brilliantly that it literally overpowered them. And these were the three whom he invited to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was arrested. Now, were these quiet, cautious, careful disciples? No, just the opposite. They were bold and courageous. In fact, Jesus' nickname, right? For James and John was what? Son of thunder. Let me give you an example. It takes place after Jesus had risen from the dead. Um, John chapter 21, verse 1 to 8. I'm not going to read the entire verse, right? Uh, but it is about the disciples out in a boat fishing, right? And they saw a, a stranger. At the time, they didn't know it was Jesus. And that stranger, Jesus, asked them, How's your catch? 
And what was the reply? Nothing, right? No fish. And he said, throw your nets out. And this is the boat. And what happened? The nets were filled. Then, I read verse 7. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him, It is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. You've got to love this guy, right? Simon Peter. As soon as he realizes that Jesus is on the shore, he immediately jumps into the water and starts swimming for all his worth. He doesn't stop to calculate the speed of the boat, the tide, the flow, right? To determine whether swimming would be faster than rowing the boat. He just sees Jesus and goes for it. Here I come, Lord. Did Peter make mistakes? Of course. For instance, when Jesus was arrested, Peter was the one who drew his sword, right? And sliced the ear of the high priest's slave. And Jesus rebuked him for that. But even then, you have to admire his boldness. Here comes the high priest yeah, with a detachment of armed guards. And Peter decides he's going to go down swinging, right? He may have been misguided, but he was definitely not afraid. He wasn't fearful. He was bold. He was wholehearted. He was committed. And Jesus loved him for it. Let me ask you, if Jesus gave you a nickname, what would it be? Would it be called Son of Thunder or something else? You know, when Jesus calls us to be disciples, he calls us to make a lifelong, irrevocable, absolute commitment. And I'd like to turn to Luke 14, 26 to 33. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you want to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will make and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. Those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. When we undertake to follow Christ, He invites us first to count the cost. Because once we set out on that road, there will be many temptations to turn back. To turn aside from the path, Jesus wants us to consider carefully what we're getting into. So that when we, so that we don't fail, right, at that critical moment and dishonor ourselves and Him as well. He wants us to determine in our hearts once and for all that when we follow Him, there will be no turning back. We have crossed the point of no return. 
And there's really no alternative, is there? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Our scripture today, Acts 4.12 Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. John 6, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but it talks about Jesus feeding the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, and also he proclaims that he is the bread of life, right? But on seeing this, many of his disciples could not accept this. Let's read from verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, Jesus, you're the only one in my life in town. Right? No matter where, what, we are sticking with you. That's the kind of attitude that God desires from each of us. You know, from a practical standpoint, why is it so important to be this radically committed to Christ? Why is it necessary, right, when I say burn our bridges to the world? Why is it so important to take that concrete step to put the world behind us? Because as long as we have an option of turning back, as long as we can mentally entertain the possibility of giving up, then we are lost of our edge. Right? It's very difficult to maintain the energy and focus and drive necessary to follow Christ through the hard times. If, in the back of our mind, we are saying to ourselves, I can always quit if the going gets tough, or it gets too uncomfortable, or it gets too unpleasant, or too demanding. I can always go back to the way I was. Let me give you an example. Marriage. As long as a couple is still entertaining the possibility of separation or divorce, they're going to have a hard time summoning the will to reconcile their differences. That potential escape that out of possibly leaving robs them of the energy and commitment they need to work through their difficulties. It makes them too willing to throw in the towel, too willing to declare their relationship hopeless. Let me give you another example. Baptism. Some of you have not been baptized, even though you have trusted Christ. There are many reasons, right, why people hesitate to be baptized. Maybe it's concerned for what other people may think of them, or perhaps what their family will think. Fear of going under the water, uncertainty as to whether they should be baptized, or if they were dedicated as an infant a reluctance to be up in front of a group of people and be the focus of attention. Don't get me wrong, my intention this morning is not to judge anyone or to pressure anyone. But there's a reason that Jesus instituted this practice, right? Baptism. A reason why he made this along together with the Lord's Supper, communion and feet washing, the ordinances of the church to be practiced to this day, right? It's because baptism is a stake in the ground. It's a way of publicly burning our bridges, 
of symbolically destroying our way of retreat. It's a way of solidifying our commitment to Christ so that we will be less likely to turn aside from following him when the going gets tough. In baptism, we proclaim to the whole world once and for all, I am a Christian, a Christ follower. Jesus commands us to be baptized as it helps us to stay committed. Let me give you one more last example as we wrap this up. Church membership. Maybe I'm getting into sensitive ground, but I'm going to say it still. Again, people have different reasons for not officially joining the church, right? And my purpose, again, is not to judge or pressure anyone. But it is impossible to be committed to the church without officially joining it. Of course, just as it's possible to be committed to a man or woman without becoming officially married. It's possible to be committed to faithful common-law wife or common-law husband. Right? And if you look at the Bible, it doesn't really say anything officially about joining a church, just as it doesn't say anything about having marriage licenses or wedding ceremonies. So why do we do it? Why do we get baptized? Why do we join the church? Because church membership is a way of solidifying our commitment to a local church body. It's a way of saying, I'm one of these people. This is my church family. It's a stake in the ground that helps you stay engaged in the life of the church, even if the day comes when you might feel inclined to leave. It's a public statement of commitment that makes it a little more likely that you will stay and work things out rather than fading away, as people sometimes do. These are just a few examples, and by no means they're exhaustive. In fact, I'm confident that in the congregation this morning, there are people dealing with all kinds of issues related to commitment. Issues have nothing to do with the examples I've cited. So in closing, let me ask you a question. What do you need to be completely devoted to Christ? What bridges is God calling you to burn? What escape hatches or exit doors do you need to slam shut and padlock? You know, what is that tangible, real step of commitment that God is calling you today to make? I hope that you will make that commitment today.
Let's stand for the closing song. Christ is my reward and all of my devotion. Now there's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy. Through every trial, my soul will sing, no turning back. I've been set free, Christ is enough for me, Christ is enough for me, everything I need is in you, everything I need, Christ is I all in my joy and my salvation, yeah. And this hope will never fail. Heaven is our home. Through every storm, my soul will sing, Jesus is here. To God be the glory. enough for me Christ is enough for me everything I need is in you everything I need I have decided to follow Jesus no turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. Christ is enough for me, Christ is enough for me, everything I need is in Everything I need, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. 
No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. Let's all bow our heads for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we want to do whatever it takes to be your faithful disciples. We ask that you continue to give us all that strength and all that might, that we will serve you 100%, and that when we do that, there will be no turning back, and we look forward to your soon coming to take us home. Thank you for hearing our prayer, for I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.